we've built a, finan- a global financial system that has its stability premised on keeping that imperative for growth in there. And that if we take that away, I, I'm not underestimating the sort of instability that that could cause, and I don't think that should be taken lightly. So that's mm-hmm. that's why I think we end up with this constant tension between interesting small-scale experiments, but nobody collectively with the courage to sort of take it to the next level because of the radiating effects of instability could have in all directions, and that might damage people who really can't afford to be damaged. And so everybody keeps fixing the edges constantly because the core of the machine, which is cranking into a rust-filled decay, it feels to me like, can't be fixed. Welcome to the third episode of the New Economy Network Australia, Nina, podcast. My name is Anna Garnock, and every few weeks I'll be interviewing folks that are a part of Nina, Australia's largest multi-sectoral network of innovators, changemakers, and advocates working for an ecologically sound and socially just economy. Today, we'll be interviewing Bronwyn Morgan, co-founder of Nina. Bronwyn has a rich background in academia. Her first teaching role was at the University of Sydney Law School before she taught at the University of Oxford, UK for six years. After seven years as a professor of socio-legal studies at the University of Bristol, UK, she joined the University of New South Wales Faculty of Law and Justice in October 2012 and has since contributed invaluable work to the university through varied research projects and as a professor of law. Her research has long focused on the changing relationship between government bureaucracy and the everyday life of citizens, especially as mediated by regulation in an increasingly globalised world. As tensions between environment and economy grew to dominate debates over regulation, she began to explore how both social activists and social enterprises responding to these challenges of climate change. This line of interest has developed into a focus of the new economy, especially its variations, often in tension with each other, of sharing economies, solidarity economies, commons-based economies, and the increasingly popular regenerative economy. So enter Nina. As Michelle mentioned in the first episode, she worked alongside Bronwyn Morgan for years and together they founded Nina. Without further ado, let's get chatting with Bronwyn. G'day, Bronwyn. Hello. Lovely to be with you. Thank you. Lovely to be with you. Thank you so much for joining us. I feel like you're in a tiny house. Is that, is that <laughs> right? I am in a tiny house. Yeah, this is <laughs> <It's> very apt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> My partner and I built it last year and, yeah, now it's our little cubby house that we live in. <laughs> I feel increasingly inclined to sort of place ourselves at the beginning of a podcast. To, so, so I'm, I'm, you know, in coastal Sydney, here in a tiny house in Canberra, the listeners can get a little bit of a sense of that. Yeah, I've actually just moved from Canberra to Newcastle. So I'm, well, I'm about half an hour west of Newcastle on dark and young country on the border of a Wobbacool country. Yeah, so I was in Canberra, but I've recently moved. And I'm glad you you placed yourself because that was going to be my first question is, whereabouts are you? So you're oh, well, well, it's not just coastal Sydney, it's also the Mura or Deal people's lands for a generation. So I'd like to acknowledge that. But uh, um, also known as Marubra, Sydney, not so far from UNSW where I work. Oh, lovely. Okay. Mm-hmm. And can you tell us not just physically placing yourself, but I guess mentally and emotionally placing yourself? Can you tell me just a little bit of how you're going and how this year has been for you oh. with all the work? Crazy changes that have happened. <laughs> I suppose we we were just coming out of something like 112 days of lockdown in Sydney, which was mm. certainly the longest period Sydney was locked down. Um, so I'd like to say, and and in large part, I am coming into a new uh, phase of this pandemic experience. But it's it's one that's charged with a sense that it might stop at any point. So I suppose that's. That's one of the features of this time is that really the striking thing about the pandemic is I when it 
it's such a context for all of us, but I feel like it's a fantastically important context for something like Nina and the work that I'm interested in because it provided this massive jolt into an opening for something different. And it still provides that. But as we've all experienced over and over again, even at a small level, you think you're sort of emerging into a new beginning, a, a sort of so-called post-COVID beginning, and then it all sort of shuts down again. And as far as sort of the broader issues that we're going to talk about here today, I feel like the same thing is happening. I feel, I keep feeling there's an opportunity for exciting innovation. And then the next moment I feel like actually we're all just struggling to get our kids behind the computer in their pyjamas for online school. <laughs> yeah. And it's back to the mundane. So I'm very much in that in that space. But I, I enormously appreciate the air and water and the fact that I have a garden and that's been uh, the best part of this last year. Yeah, so important um, when we're behind a screen all day to have a bit of green space, I suppose, and, and nature can be, yeah, food for the soul when there's not much other activity going on. Mm. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. So in the first episode, I interviewed Michelle and she kind of introduced what Nina is and how it came about. What a big journey, by the way. And she also spoke about the civil society strategy that I believe is going to be released soon. Today, I'd like to go into a little bit more depth, firstly, about your background and your kind of interests and how it translates into Nina and then also about Nina itself and just more about your efforts and motivations. So I thought I'd start with uh, your personal background. So I snooped on your LinkedIn profile (laughs) and I saw that before diving into law, you actually studied a Bachelor of Arts majoring in English literature, followed by... um, I don't even know how to pronounce this word. Is it a licentiate? Licentiate? Oh, yes. That's a music qualification. Licentiate. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Kind of like a diploma. Diploma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. In in piano performance. So I was wondering if you could please tell us where your mind was back in 1988, why you transitioned from humanities into and, and music <laughs> to law. Yeah, thanks for that question. I mean, maybe preface it by saying, as you ask it, I realise that background is really why I am now in a place where I'm trying to weave something really different out of legal studies. (laughs) It's more that effort to the creativity embedded in literature and music, I suppose, is it feels to me now like it's possible to infuse law with some of that, although it's got its barriers and we can talk about that. But um, it was it was helpful to think of it like that. So that's looking backwards. How did I transition from that into law? I was in I was enrolled in law from the beginning, and I have to confess, I suspect that was just partly the the sort of snobbery that happens when you do well at the end of school. That you and I and I credit my father for saying, you know, you love literature, just study arts. In fact, he said, go and go and work in the world. I said, doing what? He said, I don't know, work in a petrol station. (laughs) I actually, I keep looking back and thinking that was really great advice to just go and do anything before you start your studies. And then he said, just do arts and see where it takes you. But because I had done well, I felt compelled to sort of demonstrate that I was enrolled in something harder to get into. (laughs) Plus, I thought I might be a diplomat. So I had been told that law was a good string to your bow for that. And so I really just sort of enrolled in law and I wasn't particularly focused on it. Um, But when I got to the end of my humanities course, my honours supervisor was a novelist and uh, he said, are you interested in postgrad work? And I said, well, I'm thinking about finishing the law. And he said, finish the law. The humanities is is not appreciated. And this was 20 years ago. And he said he felt like there was a real... um, at the university level, a crush coming on humanities and, and, you know, the policies of the government lately are entrenching that pressure on humanities even more. So, um, so it was sort of pragmatic, uh, I guess. But there was another nice connection which actually does lead to some of the opportunities that have interested me more lately, which is that I continued with the law, but I ended up, and it's a slightly longer story, but I 
I got a job with Justice William Dean on the High Court right out of law school because I had done the English honours. And it turned out to be because he knew the Marvo decision was going to be written that year and felt that the importance of sort of perfect prose for that decision was so high that he was taken by my English honours medal. Mm. And, um, and I think that tipped the balance. I mean, I was very, very lucky. I, um, and that, that, you know, working on Marbo for the High Court that year was what made me care about law and social change and social justice and all the possibilities of rewriting. Mm. Uh, well, land, land is the basis of our economy, isn't it? So that was the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit? I had no idea. That's super interesting. I mean, that's a pivotal moment in, I guess, Australia's history. Can you tell us a bit about that and how that all came about and and, and the fruits of your labour? Uh, well, I mean, I was obviously a research associate, so just working, you know, as a support to the to the judge on that. But I think we probably spent half of that year on the, the case. And, the, you know, the, and what's interesting, and I suppose this is a theme in the sort of role of law in pushing social change and trying to play a role in transforming both social and economic context is that Mabo felt so transformative at the time, mm. but we also knew that there were limits. And I still teach it year upon year in, in different contexts um, in my job. And it's been fascinating to watch the, the reaction to it from the generations of students coming through. So and it depends on the context in which you teach it, but both the possibilities it opened up, but the inherent limits that were part of that judgment are, are always present. When I was at the court, it felt like the opening was much greater than the limits, but, you know, it, it, there were many ways in which it, it disappointed people. And that's, and, and law is such a, it's not like a piece of music that just inspires you to, to finish with a crashing chord and you feel a, a, a certain set of emotion that can be transformative in that moment without complexity. But law, I think, is always slightly disappointing, I want to say, almost. Mm. But also really powerful and really important. So I think that that's what still draws me to work in this area around law is uh, that, that nuance and complexity. So you're glad that you made the the change into law? Yeah, I found the politics of it. I mean, that's what Marvo brought it alive. It's sort of, before that, it was a technical exercise. And then it just, working at the court, just um, it sort of flamed into possibility rather than being that close reading technical exercise that I had previously brought to it. Yeah. And the other thing I remember from that day is, is, is that, from Justice Dean's office, you look straight out over the Aboriginal tent embassy, and that just became such a symbolic view. Um, yes, at that time. Yeah, especially at that time, and there, um, and it's still as strong as ever, which is important and unfortunate that it needs to be. But yeah, and with the, you know, the possibilities and the limitations that you spoke of with Marbo, and that there's still similar trend happening as time goes on what were the grand openings and the and the great limitations that you continue to see I suppose the, the biggest grand opening was the legal recognition that terra nullius was a fiction um so that it was a legal fiction but it was then legally undone um yeah. and uh I once gave a talk about it to a group of six-year-olds at my children's primary school and you know that was the only point I really wanted to make, and I found myself getting quite emotional. Oh. <laughs> I, was really, I, I, I still feel like the symbolic, um, not, it's not just symbolic because that makes it sound really symbolic, but, but the, the commitment to undoing that legal fiction in, in the precedent remains powerfully important. And what one of the biggest limits, I guess, to contrast that was the refusal in that case to acknowledge the possibility of compensation mm. and also some other aspects that made it difficult to prove your connection to land. So mm. you, you, in theory, could make the connection, but it was very difficult to prove. So practically, that symbolic power was much harder to harness under the specifics of Marbo than, than you initially thought. So I think that's why... 
it was both such a transformation and a frustration because symbolically it was fundamental, but practically it had powerful limits. And those limits also came through a 4-3 decision on, on the compensation. So um, it was a very close call on that issue. Yeah, thinking about, let's say, um, a statement of the heart and other you know, motions that have come close and there's been progress towards ceding sovereignty and then over and over again the limitations coming in and, and not actually making headway in that area is age-old tale. Yeah, unfortunately. I'll get more into that later. I'd, I'd like to go then more into your research. So after Marbo and entering um, 90s and beyond, you've done, yeah, obviously research in social activism social enterprise space responding to climate change and obviously from a regulation perspective. Can you tell us a bit about your research and what you've learnt? Oh, yeah, well, it's it's sort of a long trajectory, but I I suppose I started out interested in government. I felt like, you know, government was the place where law reform happened and and that's where um, this kind of social justice would start. But And I studied a lot on the negative side initially. So I suppose the shift was to be more and more drawn to study the positive possibilities, but not necessarily through things which often get focused on within law space like human rights or even straightforward environmental justice. So I suppose the economy has always been really central. So and I started out studying deregulation and privatisation of the economy. And so as the government's role changed, in relation to that, they kept handing off things that they might have done directly through government provision before, especially water. And I got really interested in the social activism part because when government started privatising water and I was studying the process of that happening in different countries across the world, then people got really active against that. Mm. Um, But I was doing a very technical study of the global governance and regulation and, and I got, this was a project so early in my career, and I did it for quite a long time and got quite deflated and felt almost paralysed by the way in which the activism kept running up against a a sort of deadlock. And actually the human rights angle is a good illustration of this. There was a United Nations, um, it's called a general comment on the human right to water, came out during the time I was studying this. And many activists were very excited. They felt like this was an opening. Mm. The human right to water was now you know, recognised in some form by the United Nations. It wasn't a treaty, but it was a formal comment. And it was appearing in some constitutions and so on. And I did, even then I felt reluctant to to sort of go too far down this path for various reasons. But what I would say is that the activist efforts channeled into that then kind of ran up against all the technical regulatory issues that were always there in the first place. And, and, turned into more stalemates. And this battle around water is still going on. That doesn't mean the human rights debates aren't important. They are politically powerful. But how do you translate that political power into legal policy that works on the ground to really truly empower the people who were activists in the first place? That's Mm -hmm. not a question that's readily solved by human rights tools and scholarship by itself. You have to tangle with the economy and the property rights and the, the company law. And, and, and so that's that's why I started to think, you know, I want to look at how law shapes new economies. And I first came across it almost by accident. I wrote a piece at the end of a general magazine article I was writing saying, I think I was referring to the fact that San Francisco had started selling bottled water from the government so that instead of private companies dominating the bottled water market. The San Francisco government said, let's let's just bottle our own tap water and sell it. We're not pretending it's not tap water. Um, and that seemed, and then they were using the money raised from that for public projects. And I thought, well, that's novel. Instead of government trying to regulate these giant water companies, or in addition to that, they were entering into business. And uh, I wrote a little piece about that as a hypothetical and then read the paper. This is, I was living in the UK and found that a young woman in her 20s in Bristol had just started a company to do exactly that. It's called Frank Water. It's still going. It's a wonderful company. Um, She's never 
you know, exploded into a sort of giant company, uh, but it, it, it sells bottled water and tries to persuade big companies and universities to not use bottled water but to use filtered installed water. And um, all the profits go to various projects in India that they have very personal relationships with over many years. Um, and it's very relational and, and connected. And it does use metrics to measure social impact, but it's 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 got a new economy feel of relationality from the beginning. And um, yeah. yeah, I emailed her and said I was interested, and we we met. And we ended up getting research funding to get PhD student, and then we both had babies at the same time, and the PhD <laughs> student had to sit um, in cafes with us breastfeeding. <laughs> Sorry, that's too direct. But it's just, I just thought the beginning of all of this was so, it was such a departure from studying global governance of transnational Mm. water companies at a very technical level. And it felt to me like this explosion of a sense of possibility around how law might be able to help. Mm. Big time. It reminds me of um, the thank you water movement in Australia. Yes. A young guy, I think from maybe from Sydney, um, yes. who started that and had so many barriers. He tried to get into so many shops and everyone turned him back and then finally he made a break and then it just went off. You know, again, he doesn't advocate drinking bottled water, especially mm. here where our tap water is reasonably you know, it's it's perfectly fine. Um, but his mentality is that if you're going to buy water, then you may as well buy a bottled water that at least goes back into, I mean, these are communities abroad. But, yeah, now it's exploded and there's thank you detergents and hand wash and soap. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it, it's because Katie's company has kept close track of thank you's efforts and it's a really, it's probably a whole separate conversation, but it's an interesting question I don't have a clear answer like what is the better way forward to explode and scale like that and go out into lots of new products or to to sort of stay relatively small and continue those very personal relationships with your the projects that you fund which would become impossible at scale it would be much more mediated by just ways of doing it at a distance Um, yeah so I think that's a real challenge for the new economy as a whole like many of the most exciting initiatives that we often um, look at or feature or try to build through through Nina are very small scale and I am really passionate about the importance of small scale experiments and and, but I, I suppose my basic view is that I would like to see us design a a policy and legal landscape that makes it really feasible for many small initiatives to coexist and network with each other rather than to feel this pressure to grow and scale up and become large. But the way we've designed the economic system doesn't make that easy at the moment at all. So, Which is why, I mean, that's really what Nina is, right? Like it is a platform for people to come together, network, learn from each other, and then hopefully take those learnings back to their local area and implement it, um, mm. implement ideas, maybe change things up to suit mm. their locality mm. a bit better. But yeah yeah ah interesting research so now today with that research where are you hoping to go with it have you got any plans of next projects or where yeah where are you at now well it's interesting so what I did initially in following that path was look at specific experiments in food and water and not no I didn't look at water I was I was exhausted by water food transport and energy um, and so I still follow community-owned renewable energy, for example, mm-hmm. which I think is a really interesting space. Um, I started looking at car sharing, and that's an interesting one because that's almost become ordinary commercial part of everyday economy. Oh, well, mm-hmm. we have a car sharing company and we have a car rental company, and there is a sort of a difference. And But, I mean, I think there are some background aspects to that which are, which are more – it's not purely – well, depends on the car sharing company, but all of those types of initiatives led me to a particular interest in the way in which digital platforms are used to help new economy initiatives sometimes and other times just to use them as a platform to jump off into the, the sort of big commercial sharing economy world, 
which doesn't go in a positive direction necessarily at all, especially for social and ecological impact. So the, the um, it's not a car-sharing company, but, I mean, Uber, I don't think Uber actually made many claims to be particularly ecological, but the Airbnb initially did. Um, and there's actually a very recent report that came out of Carnegie Mellon University on Uber's ecological impacts, which is, mm. um, I think the New York Times just wrote it up, very uh the report's actually mixed. The headlines, I think, say that it's really problematic, that it's not improving pollution from emissions and or, and or saving emissions from sharing rides in the ways that it had initially promised to. And to me, that's, that goes back to my focus, one of my two focuses now, which is, you know, how can we use the digital platform piece of the puzzle in a positive way? Um, and that has to do with all the other pieces of the economy, especially the sort of legal frameworks of how things are financed. But not only that, also just governance and um, ownership. So platform cooperativism, which tries to put the principles of the cooperative economy at the heart of building the digital platforms, is um, something I've been trying to get funding to work on for a while and, and have looked at so far without that funding, but I'll keep trying. Um, and then I guess the other related line is this interest in regenerative economies, um, which is a broader policy framework, I think, for um, encouraging uh, us to go beyond sustainability and to start really thinking about less about limiting damage and more about building new models and about really baking that into city policies initially with the um, the interest in donut economics. I can talk about that a bit more if you're interested, but this enthusiasm around donut economics at city level all over the world is suddenly... Uh, piquing my interest so I'm trying to focus on that too. Great I will ask you about that in one question's time because I want to take a step back and ask you a question that I do like to ask all guests which is um, and it'll lead nicely into donut economics but um, yeah I'd like to know your opinion of what you think is wrong with our global economic system and why we need a new well-being economy. Huh? <laughs> um. <laughs> I think I'm trying to choose which piece to, to put at the centre. It's a consciousness piece which has an immediate economic implication and correlate, if you like. But the, con- the thing that's most wrong is the mania for more and more as the answer to everything and the feeling that if we do more, including of the good stuff, that it will solve the problems. So it's a particular vision of the good life as so premised on doing more that there's no room for slowing down, there's no room for small scale, there's no room for um, stepping aside from that imperative for growth that is really built into the centre of the economic model. So I'm, I'm, I'm framing it as a consciousness thing because I feel like if that changed so much else would become possible to change. So the the challenge is that I think a lot of, I really believe a lot of individual people are not necessarily so fanatically attached to more being a path to happiness, especially more on the material side, or, or might not be if they were offered a system which allowed more room to pursue other pathways. So you might well be focused on that because there's no choice because otherwise you're going to sink. You know, it's a sort of sink or swim economic system. Um, I mean, obviously, we do try to take the edges off to some degree, particularly in the the wealthier countries. Um, But overall, the core of the system prioritises economic growth, both legally and politically. And I can't, in some ways, can't believe that it's still... As long as I've been alive, I, I feel like the only platforms for politics are really jobs and growth in that very general sense. Like there isn't, there isn't a positive vision that goes beyond that. Well, we could talk about populism and nationalism, but those are ugly fear-based tools, the way they're typically used. Um, so that's a, that's a slightly rambling answer, but I feel like that conscious, if there was an appetite for a different form of what makes up a good life, then 
and, and then a way to feed that into politics and law so that we could actually build it into the policy and legal framework, um, that that would help a great deal. But I'm very conscious in saying that, that we built a, a global financial system that has its stability premised on keeping that imperative for growth in there. And that if we take that away, I, I'm not underestimating the sort of instability that that could cause, and I don't think that should be taken lightly. So that's mm-hmm. that's why I think we end up with this constant tension between interesting small-scale experiments, but nobody collectively with the courage to sort of take it to the next level because of the radiating effects of instability could have um, in all directions, and that might damage people who really can't afford to be damaged. And so everybody keeps fixing the edges constantly because the core of the machine, which is cranking into a rust-filled um, decay, it feels to me like, can't be fixed. I don't know. Yeah, it's hard. It would require so much collective effort from not just everyday citizens that are that are speaking up, but really from bigger corporate and government bodies that have uh, a lot more power and a lot more say. Mm. So. I think that's just in itself a ginormous challenge that seems indefeatable, but then also in general, like really nutting it out and creating a framework that could really work on so many fronts is really tricky. It's really mm. tricky to, yeah. There's a great novel called Ministry for the Future. Have you come across it? No, I've never heard of it. It's a sprawling sort of science fiction but set in an, uh, you know, an imaginable near future. Um, starts out with a horrifying heat wave in India, which is um, catastrophic and very vivid and quite confronting. You have to get through that chapter. Mm. Um, and then, but, and then, yes, it just, in fact, apparently one of the characters is based on an Australian economist, I forget the name, a real person who is um, part of a UN body. So I, there are many threads to the plot, but it's got a, a sort of a policy angle, which for someone like me is really um, it's a sort of nerdy interest. But this woman who runs a United Nations committee, um, it's the committee, I think it's the secretariat for the, the sort of cops, and it ends up being given, it has an obscure technical legal provision that gives it potentially more power than you would expect. And after the India heatwave at the beginning of the novel, they basically sort of say we need to exercise this power. And a woman who's leading that committee persuades all the central banks in the world's business economies to issue a carbon coin, a currency based on carbon emissions, and then to sort of work the global financial system based on that measure. And you, I'm not a financial expert, so I don't know if it would be fair to say that it would be sort of a carbon-based version of blockchain but adopted officially by all the world's banks. But he manages to work that into a novelistic story of how that changed the world day by day, along with, and this this is really interesting to me because it's the activist piece. So there's this nerdy technical carbon currency reform, and there's lots in the book about the science as well, these wonderful scientific characters and so on. But then there's this constant additional thread of really full-on activism, some of which is violent and it sort of takes place in the background and it's a bit shadowy, but you get the impression that it's an essential piece of the picture and that without that, it's not clear whether things would change if you had simply reformed the financial system. So I, I just think that dialogue between activism and very tricky technical policy is crucial and not easy and one that, yeah, I think Nina's a great place to start having those conversations. Big time. Which, I mean, is a nice segue into, into why you got involved in Nina. What, what was it for you, reflecting back, I think you started conversations with Michelle in 2015, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but, yeah, I'd love to hear your rationale and inspiration for yeah. Yeah, starting up a, Nina. A few funny serendipitous bits which was, it did did start with Michelle. I don't know if she told you um, how she inveigled me into a conference. Um, She didn't. She called me up and said she was running a conference on wild law um, and would I speak. And then 
halfway into the conversation, she admitted she'd already put me on the program, which had already been circulated. Oh my gosh! (laughs) I did for 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 about a minute. I felt annoyed, but she's so charming. Plus, I was really intrigued by this wild law thing. But I, I also, there was another thread that I don't, I think the wild law felt a bit out of my comfort zone um, mm. because it was, it was so non-academic, which, mm. which doesn't seem to matter to me anymore now. But at the time, it, I mean, I'd only just arrived in Australia after being away for 20 years and mm. I was sort of starting on this research fellowship and it didn't seem quite the thing I imagined doing. But I had bought this book when I was on maternity leave in, in, in Bristol um, called Wild Law, which actually is connected to what Michelle was doing. And I bought it because the author was a friend of one of my childhood friends from Zimbabwe. So it was just this bizarre. I saw this book in a Bristol bookshop written by a South African lawyer called Wild Law. And I thought, goodness me, <laughs> what? I didn't know that this particular person had gone down that route, bought it. And, and read it and found it very, at the time, sort of alienating, almost like a, a little book on religion. And I thought, how does that connect to law? But he was talking about earth jurisprudence and Thomas Berry and all the things that underpin Nina, which I knew nothing about. So I just kept it as a curiosity. But when Michelle called with this, this proposition, I just thought, well, something in the universe <laughs> is connecting these pieces. So I went to speak at the conference and found it so stimulating to step out of the academic boxes and just speak across specialisms in a way that was a bit disorienting and dizzying but also positive that I kept going, basically. And by the time we got to the end of the um, fellowship that I had, I had to do a big final conference. And this was another sort of serendipitous piece is that I expected to hire the big hall in the university, but some internal pricing structure had changed and it was really expensive, even though I was a faculty member. So I actually had to, to, to sort of build the cost of hiring this big hall into the conference. And we really wanted to make the conference accessible to non-academics, especially these sort of small social enterprises and entrepreneurs and freelance people that we thought were the most interesting experimental sort of action people in the the field. So we didn't want it to be just people who had sort of paid, reasonably paid jobs. And um, so we moved to Glebe Town Hall and and that made it virtually, it wasn't free, but it was close to free. And that changed the mix of who came and it changed the atmosphere. And we had to move out of the hall on the first night to make room for the yoga class and then put all the chairs back together for the next day. And the whole thing became more community focused. Mm -hmm. And that was why it made sense to sort of suggest that Nina begin from that conference because that was the, it wasn't the first Nina conference. It was the first conference where we thought let's do Nina and we sort of put it to everybody. But it was, yeah, Michelle's fabulous energy and joy in dialogue, which, um, and, and, and the feedback from that conference, I still have it somewhere because the word joy was mentioned so many times mm. in that feedback. And I, and I hope you know, in these hard times that we can keep hanging on to that and um, yeah. finding that. And I, I feel like that that still happens and that's what's kept me, kept me going. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I understand that she does have a really lovely, positive, kind of lighthearted energy, yet very passionate. Um, and I think just in a space where everyone is equally passionate and driven and, and offering new insights. It, would, it just sounds like a fun, stimulating, yeah, I don't know, time to really let your brain and your heart buzz. Yeah. Yeah, so now in Nina, you're the co-founder. Tell me more about your role and what you do within Nina now that it's all established. Well, it's a cooperative, um, a legal cooperative. Um, we're registered in Victoria um, it could be in anywhere in any state, but Victoria. Um, I think the year we registered, we had the conference in Melbourne, so I think that was the one. Um, and I'm on the board of directors, and and have been since the beginning. And so my role is as one of one amongst equals on a board of directors, I suppose formally. I mean, I'm on the participatory budget group, which is looking at ways to. I mean, we still do everything 
almost 100% as volunteers. We've got membership, so we have a small amount of money that comes in through membership. But essentially, it's it's a giant volunteer effort. And I suppose that would be one of the questions that we would face in coming years is to what extent do we move from that model to doing something through paid projects, but we haven't really taken that path strongly um, to date. And it's just building the network and these very frequent webinars. So I think there's a presence online, especially since lockdown, of positive content that really just keeps connecting people and then sending them off into the um, the ether to to pursue we, we do the, we have lots of hubs and the hubs do uh, focused projects but I, I think probably again they're less they're more still more focused on dialogue conversation and connection um, and opening up op- opportunities than on sort of implementing and executing executing projects for specific clients there isn't that's not that's not where it's been at the moment um, mm. yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, the, and then there are these connections to donut economics and well-being economics developing. So I, you said you might come back. Yeah, I, I I got carried away and asked about Nina. I'm glad you just reminded me. I was going to ask you when you explained the, the issues with our growth paradigm and, and global economic system, I was going to ask you after that, how does donut economics fit into that and how could it, what solutions or opportunities does, does donut economics mm. Yeah, because I think I think that ties back both to that earlier point, but also to this this overall sense of positive energy and even joy and certainly playfulness um, that we were just talking about a moment ago. Because so the the donut economics uh, model, I think, has inspired a lot of people. I mean, it makes certain constituencies uh, either laugh dismissively or possibly even sneer, I suppose, because donut and economics don't go together. But I think that playfulness on the author's part, Kate Rayworth, who wrote the book, has always been deliberate. Um, and and the more that I see, and I mean, the truth is it's always been more attractive to non-economists, but mm. right from my PhD thesis, uh, which was, I didn't talk about, but it was about national competition policy in Australia. And I People kept saying, oh, are you an economist? And I've never been an economist, but I've always just believed that economics needs to be something that non-economists can write about, care about, and be interested in. So the donut economics model is very good at doing that because it has this playfulness, but the actual idea, the basic idea that you have um, both a ceiling and a foundation, like a circle with a whole the donut metaphor, involves you know not going beyond the limits of the outside and those limits are set by the planetary boundaries. And that's very science-based with decades of work behind it. And then, but not falling below the social foundation. So you don't fall into a hole. And those are those social foundations are mapped by the sustainable development goals. So again, connecting to lots and lots of science and research. And yet coming up with this quite accessible framework which says that's actually what economics is about if you want to stay in a safe operating space um, for both the earth and for humanity and so it's it's a particular way of framing the social and ecological goals of Nina in a Mm. way that that is a bit more grounded in both science and economics um, than we came in through law and policy I suppose so we feel like it's a it's a good connection Um, and then it the challenge it makes to GDP as a measure for growth and the idea of well-being being a better measure for that. And that's a slightly separate debate, the well-being econ- economy. But again, another very strong, inspiring woman, uh, very much the heart of that, Catherine Trebek. And so there's, there are these different, I mean, I'm really struck by the constant presence of women in these settings because one of the places where donut economics is most being implemented at a really quite structured policy level is Amsterdam and um, the, both the mayor and the deputy mayor are women and there's a lovely podcast episode interview with the deputy mayor by um, Jane, uh, Anthony James on the Regeneration podcast uh, which is a great interview and what she conveys again is this, this, this combination of seriousness and joyfulness. The deputy mayor comes from a law background and worked on um, 
human rights trafficking. And she does a brilliant explanation of how that issue, and she realized in the very short version of this, she realized that you couldn't solve human rights trafficking issues unless you have systemic transformation for the economy. Um, mm. Even though she'd been coming at it from a sort of human rights and social justice perspective, but that the economic piece was crucial to everything else. Um, and part of what they talk about in what they've implemented in Amsterdam is how they're getting ordinary business people phoning them up. It's a, it's a longer story to sort of tell you the policy context, but they're doing things which are making people think we are engaged in a collective project to regenerate Amsterdam's economy. So even though I've had regulations put on me by the city about my carbon emissions for my new construction development, so has every other business in Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. And here I am calling up the mayor saying, I've come up with a great new idea to come in under these limits. And people are sharing these ideas and feeling both creative in the original literature sense, to go back to your first question. It's like the possibilities that a novel has where some a new, a new plot line develops. But people, it's not just a new plot line. Well, it is a new plot line because a novel is a collective world. It's an imaginary world for many people. It's not just a solo monologue. And so this sort of the world of, you know, every business competing for themselves. I mean, I'm starting to sound a bit apple pie and motherhood, but this it really comes out of this podcast interview. It changes the narrative about what the city economic development vision is. It gives everybody a part and it allows people to collaborate across sectors in a way that adds meaningfulness to their individual struggles with the difficulties of everyday life. Mm. And it does that from one sector to another across all areas of city life. And, and so there are all these little movements popping up in the cities now, even in Australia. So there's Regen Sydney, there's Regen Brisbane, there's Regen Melbourne. And yeah. we're all going to present our sort of progress on these fronts at the conference in November. And that's just happened in the last seven months. So yeah. that was a, a long answer, but um, the combination of donut economics, well-being economies, and Nina's original mission are very productive, I think. Yeah. And so with the um, these movements that have come up just in the last half a year, how do you see donut economics as a, as a tool that could be realistic in Australia, in the in our continent's context, and um, what would we need to do apart from brilliant people doing all the research and making small local changes? What do we need to do to actually see that come to fruition in a bigger way? Oh, wow. Well, I guess there's two. I mean, probably many things, but the two things I would say. The first is hopefully in Australia, we could. And we, we, I think all the different city movements are very, very uh, conscious of this and respectful of it and working on ways to do it, which is to make First Nations a part of that conversation. So donut economics, although I've just bubbled over about it, I mean, we live on the continent that for 60,000 years achieved that balance, you know, mm -hmm. with, with, with the way that Indigenous pre-colonial approaches to managing the continent were done. And I just, so so whatever we do, in, in a way, you mentioned Uluru's statement from the heart earlier, if that if that process could be, I just so wish that the politicians would respond and take that up. And, and because whatever steps have to be taken beyond the small-scale projects, as you say, ideally have to operate at the policy level and the legal level and, and the constitutional level for Uluru, beginning with that. And so if there was some possibility of combining those conversations, although, you know, the importance of the Uluru being its own conversation is very powerful as well. But I, I just I think that's the macro picture, which is probably one of the most important things to just keep paying attention to and respect for as, as these movements develop. Um, yeah. So that's a big picture one. And then the, the other would be, I mean, the, Donut economics was originally posited as a global framework for looking at the planet as a whole. But because you can't implement anything like that from a government policy point of view at the global level, I suppose you could sit down and try to redesign the international trade system and you really would design something profoundly different and you probably 
could have some interesting and useful conversations about what that would look like. But meanwhile, you can take a bioregion, you can take a city, and that's what these city-based movements are about, and you can actually do um, detailed data work. It's already being done. It's just about pulling it together in, in, in a narrative that makes sense to a lot of different groups. So you're, you're using the data that people are collecting in these specialist areas, and you're pulling them into the one story about how they how they relate to those limits and foundations in in the donut. So you have a city portrait of what of what you can do. And if you come up with a giant project, like I believe, I think somebody from Brisbane said it would be interesting to have the Brisbane one be in dialogue with the Olympics, for example. So if the Olympics are coming to Brisbane in whenever it is, it's it's a reasonably medium-term time frame. So there's a way of saying let's let's imagine holding the Olympics in a way that does stays within the donut within Brisbane. And that the, yeah. that the emissions and the global supply chains and everything that relate to the Olympics is respectful of the donut limits, both at the bottom and the top level. Um, and, and, you know, actually getting policy authorities working on that um, in a sort of data-led way is very concrete, not easy, but no harder than running an economy in a global pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and if nothing else, I think also thinking about it on the multinational global scale, having a platform like many other, let's say, UN conferences where people come to, where countries' representatives come together and and do what they do best, which is diplomacy and essentially some kind of accountability that puts pressure on nations to take action, mm. um, you know, to the point that now our Prime Minister is attending mm. COP in, in in Glasgow in uh, on the twenty uh, the twenty sixth one. So like, and that is thanks to both national and international pressure. So I think, um, yeah, that would be really interesting to see. As you said, we can't necessarily monitor and maybe what's the word like have some kind of accountability that's legal on an international level, but having a, a bigger scale platform for countries together to to discuss these things would be. Interesting, hypothetically. Well, I mean that 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 Ministry for the Future. If if all the loans in the world were tied to a carbon coin, it it, it would be all but legal. I mean, it would be driven by financial incentives, but built into the the legal underpinnings of the financial system. Um, yeah. So that's why I think that novel really is quite interesting because that's that's the only sort of easily imaginable way you could actually embed it in transnational law without unimaginable complexity. Yeah, yeah. And I think that we would need the current policymakers in government in general to not be so um, at the whim of Microsoft, Amazon, all of these huge, huge organisations that are very opposed to that because it doesn't mm. serve their interests at the moment. The, 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 there's not the courage or oomph from government to make those stances no. to have you know, and even just a carbon tax, um, let alone, yeah, the idea of a carbon coin. The foundational principles of Nina are ecological sustainability, social justice, democracy, place-based and emphasising locality and First Nations people in Australia. I'm wondering how does Nina ensure that they work in solidarity with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders? Well, I think, yeah, that goes back to the broader point of doing that with respect and and a mode of listening. So I would say it's almost, I mean, there's a there's an openness and inclusion at all points, but there's there's also I think it's a working with alongside and an amplifying of what Indigenous initiatives are doing on their own terms, perhaps mm. seems to be the the most productive. I mean, we have, haven't got like a formal policy about this, but there are these very yeah. exciting initiatives like regenerative songlines and future dreaming is something Michelle's actually directly involved in separately, but it's a separate organization. So mm-hmm. um, those, you know, we sort of in dialogue with those, but not came to speak for them because they're representing the concerns of the Indigenous peoples from that perspective 
as a self-standing initiative. So I think it's those sort of parallel dialogues and amplification is probably the way that we're approaching it. Um, I mean, I was just listening to some uh, uh, someone talked last night from the Aboriginal Carbon Foundation transition bond I had him speak about connecting to country. And that was a really good example of an Indigenous-led organisation, the Aboriginal Carbon Foundation, that's doing lots of very practical, executed projects with specific farmers here and there. And it's the kind of thing that Nina, you know, is a good space to support and amplify the dialogue around. But like I said earlier, Nina, to date, hasn't been doing that kind of project-level work. And that's where you get the more direct collaboration. Um, and I think in some ways, some ways, I, I, I mean, I'm saying this off the top of my head now, but it's I like that that two-level model of that the collaboration would be very tight if you're on a project level because then you can build in protections for all different perspectives and interests into that project. But at the level of NINA as a whole, it's more the parallel dialogue with self-standing organisations that rather than trying to sort of fold them all into one place, um, sure. that I think works better. Yeah. Yeah, and Nina operates well like that. I'm I'm learning more and more from interviews that it is just this this, this bringing together of people networking, connecting, and sharing initiatives. So, with your role in in Nina, what would you say are some of the things that you're proudest of, or most grateful for so far? <laughs> well, it's proudest of being having been there from the start, and you know of staying on that program that I got put on, mm-hmm. <laughs> staying with the, the flow of events, you know, the flow that took us into the creation of that, Nina. Um, and what was the second one? What am I most excited yeah, about? Yeah, proud and pr- proud, grateful, excited about. Sure. Grateful, yeah. grateful. Well, grateful, I'm, yeah, grateful and excited about, about the sense of creativity and um, joyfulness and playfulness around the, the relationships and the projects that, are amplified by and come out of Nina. I mean, I just I feel like it's it's it feels like food. Uh, it feels like the thing that keeps me going in amongst the, you know, so it's the the joyful bits of the day. I love food. <laughs> and <laughs> the other parts of the day can be mundane, can be challenging, can be sort of rewarding in a disciplinary focused way, but. And of course, there are aspects to that with Nina too. But it, it it channels the work into something that feels like it's feeding you in a healthy way, um, and I'm really grateful for that. It's fueling you. I love yeah. that analogy. Yeah. And what have been your biggest learnings from from being involved in Nina? Oh, well, it's the power of what can be done, you know, with voluntary collaboration. Um, and and the the sort of difficulty of the tension between paid implemented projects executed on the ground and this sort of open energy that I'm talking about. Like how do you how do you keep that open, creative, playful energy flowing in a in, in different currents without channeling them? But then how do you sustain? And and so far it's been fine, but but that's the I don't know if it's a, we haven't learned necessarily the best way to do that. We've got an idea we're about to implement with anchor hubs, um, mm. which we hope might bridge that, which right. is, I guess, essentially about pulling in more project-focused organisations to act as temporary anchors for the different hubs. Um, and then they, as, as anchors, as hubs will be project-focused, but that won't be a permanent thing. They'll move. They'll have a kind of a tenure, and then there'll be a different anchor for that hub in future. So it just that keeps the energy flowing and channeling through to different constituencies, rather than rather than it becoming we are a network of these twenty organisations, and then it sort of it, it becomes a different animal. I once had a research project where we ended each interview by asking the person if your organisation was an animal, what would it be? We had some really mm. fascinating results. <laughs> if Nina was an animal, what would it be? So, so yeah, um, now I have to answer my own question. And um, yeah, you do. <laughs> I feel like it might be one of those those um, 
animals that you kids build where they put a giraffe's head on an elephant's body, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's, you know, made up of a Noah's Ark. Yes. You, you know, that project actually produced because the more, the closer an organisation was in that project to being a standard mainstream commercial player, the more likely it was to be a primate that was sort of on the hunt, a predator. Mm-hmm. And, and the more it was a new economy, the more likely it was to be a, something like a beaver or a mosquito. Or I mean, there were all sorts of things that people picked, but they were much more quixotic and small and part of an ecosystem and doing their own thing as opposed to being a lion or a tiger. <laughs> so I, I, did, I think that did say something about that consciousness and that mindset that I started out with. Never underestimate the little guys as well. They do. They yes. add so much um, importance to our ecosystem that we don't take credit for sometimes intuitively because they're small. <laughs> you know what? Um, Maybe we're a liar bird. I, I'm going to go for a liar bird. Nice. Why a liar bird? Oh, because it's it's sort of it's glorious and playful, and it can it can voice so many other beings, and it amplifies the voice. Mm-hmm. of many, many other beings in surprising ways. And when you sort of look, walk through the bush, you hear it and it, it sort of shows you mm-hmm. new openings. Yes, yes, I see that. I, I definitely see that. I mean, even just you talking about the anchor hubs and how there's going to, it's not going to be one organization that stays and maybe could become stale after a time you're going to continually change and get fresh perspectives and keep the the the, the belly of the beast a beautiful lyrebird beast <laughs> um you know constantly renewed i suppose yeah that's nice okay so i have final five questions each 20 seconds or less one resource that you'd recommend oh oh gosh um one. <laughs> um, I mean, wild law was what brought me to it. So <laughs> why not re reinvoke wild law? It was the beginning of it all for me. Great. I think it would be interesting to reread at this point because, as I say, I thought it was so out there, but I suspect I would reread it in a very different spirit now. That's true. Yeah. You might be like, oh, I'm all over that. Yeah. <laughs> um, one person who's inspired you. Michelle. <laughs> Yes. We oh, touched by that. How do you reconcile on a day-to-day basis the understanding that our growth-based economic system is flawed, yet your survival depends on being part of it? How do you work with that, navigate that? Oh, wow. I, I'm trying to develop almost like two voices in, in my head, you know, the one because... Sometimes I can't go get pick up the takeaway pizza because I feel like I'm burning five thousand year old fossil fuels, and, I, you know, and so I try to I'm trying to develop the piece of me that says I I want to continue to pay attention to that, but I still need to go pick up the takeaway pizza. So I have two identities in my head all the time, and they're in conversation, um, and I sort of do that with academia and this kind of work as well. So. I try to live that dual identity the whole time. That's all you can do, I suppose. Yeah. If you could give one piece of advice to an Australian politician, leading politician, what would it be? Have courage to lead on offering people a different way of life that doesn't necessarily centre economic growth so obsessively because people are waiting to be offered that. Yes. Amazing. And finally, dream big. Um, if all of a sudden you miraculously had infinite time, money and resources just to spend on Nina right now, what would you do? Oh, resource it to support city-based or bioregion-based movements all over the country that would be able to network with equally well-resourced Indigenous knowledge centres. Oh, love that. Cool. We are coming to the end of the podcast. Thank you. I know we've gone four minutes over time, so I appreciate you bearing with me. Is there anything else you wanted to touch on that I didn't ask you about? No, it's been a wonderful wandering conversation, which I've really appreciated. Yeah, as have I. I I can really see and feel in you your passion for the themes and the ethics, but also your spirit of joy and, and that being a really important value as part of all of it. 
if people are interested in in learning more about your work or what you do or just want to reach out to you in general, how can they how can they find you? Well, I've got the website on UNSW Faculty of Law and Justice, and there is another website which documented the project that led to Nina um, called activismandenterprise.weebly.com. I haven't kept it up beyond. I think I went through to the announcement that we were forming Nina, um, but it's got all the activities we did as part of that four-year project. It's quite an interesting archive in a way. And... Uh, yeah, have a look at what's going on with Regen Sydney. There's a website for that too. Um, and join Regen Sydney if you're based in Sydney or Regen Melbourne or Regen and uh, Nina. Join Nina. Yes. Join Nina. I mean, I was taking that for granted. But. Amen. I, I could have um, spoken to you for so much longer, Bronwyn. It was really, really nice hearing your thoughts and insights. Thank you so much for joining me, taking the time to speak with us and share your insights and your experiences. I really appreciate it. Yeah, a pleasure. Thanks so much, Anna. Bye-bye. Bye. So that was Bronwyn Morgan, the co-founder of Nina, alongside Michelle Maloney. Thank you so, so much for listening. You can check out the Nina website, neweconomy.org.au, to sign up to the newsletters, join regular webinars, join the Facebook page and other social media pages, and, of course, consider becoming a member of Nina help grow this nationwide momentum towards economic well-being and social progress. Special thank you to the music group Formidable Vegetable for this wicked song currently being played called Earth People Fair. You can check out Formidable Vegetable at music.formidablevegetable.com.au. Thank you again for tuning in. Till next time, take care, be well, and all the best. One planet, one love.